Hello, welcome back to another episode of the Cyclist Magazine podcast. I'm your host, Joe Robinson. Joining me in a set of very snazzy cycling sunglasses is James Spender. Good afternoon, Joseph. How are you going, mate? Yeah, I'm good, thank you very much. And on today's show, we have a man who was a World Tour pro for many years, a British national champion, but is now plying his trade in the commentary booth and on the back of a motorbike at the Tour de France. It's Mr. Adam Blythe. It's an excellent episode with some very funny stories, so do listen to that. But before we get to that very moment, me and James are going to run down some of the stuff that we're liking and disliking in the world of cycling right now. Hello, James. Very nice set of sunglasses you've joined me in today. Uh, some Rocker Matadors, am I right? You are correct, Joe. Uh, Rocker, I say Roker. I don't know. They're, let's call the whole thing off. Let's call the whole thing off. They're sort of, um, you know, because this is not a visual entity, this is a spoken word. I'll describe them. They're fluoro yellow. They've got blue tinted lenses. They make me look a little bit like Brett the Hitman Hart. They're ridiculous. Yeah. Like all cycling sunglasses, they're totally ridiculous. But I kind of like them. And with a helmet, I don't know, you get away with it, don't you? I fell left out by the fact that you're in a site of cycling sunglasses when we came onto this call. So I'd grabbed the closest set of sunglasses to me at that time, which were a pair that I bought from, uh, is it ASOS or ASOS? Not the Swiss clothing brand, cycling brand, the other one. I got ASOS, obviously, yeah, ASOS. 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 Yeah, and I bought what I thought were going to be some like cool 1970s Steve McQueen-esque sunglasses. Um, and as you rightfully pointed out, I look like I'm married to snooker legend Dennis Taylor. You do. You're like Dennis Taylor's wife. Mm. They are very uh, woman of 1978, wears sunglasses to coast look. Yeah, very much like that. Here's a quick question on sunglasses. What's your feeling on reflective lenses? Because there's a part of me that gets slightly weirded out by being able to see your eyes through your lenses. But also I appreciate that people don't want to see themselves when they're looking at your face in your reflected lenses. I quite like reflective lenses. I actually have another set of casual cycling, uh, it's casual sunglasses that I bought from M&S that are almost clear lens. And multiple people have said that they were freaked out by the fact that they can see my eyes so much. Yeah, I just think it makes you look like some um, sort of... Looks, I like... It makes me think of the... You know what? I don't know why, but it makes me think Mancurian candidate. Really? It makes me think... Uh... East European socialist geneticist, uh, evil doctor genius. <laughs> um, less about sunglasses and how they make us feel, more about how you are, how what you've been up to, and some things in the cycling world that have really got you going and got you down. Well, what I'm up to, uh, I don't know if you can hear it at the moment, but there's a bit of DIY going on in the flats that I'm living in, so that's been a constant source of annoyance and terrible for podcasting. Mm. So I've been trying to get out on my bicycle more than normal. And I rode a uh, big shout-out as well to Ollie. Um, Ollie Gray from Hunt Wheels. Um, rode with Ollie down to uh, Brighton from London, which was a lovely day out punctuated by one of the things that I really don't like in cycling, which is excessively steep hills right at the end of the ride. Yeah. Rode up the beacon, and I haven't grovelled up. I used to live down in Brighton Sea, so I used to go up and down the beacon quite a lot. Not fast, but you know, I knew it. And I've never grovelled up that thing so hard as coming in. There's a block headwind from about 10k out. But 25k out, we were like, oh, we smashed through this ride. Aren't we really good cyclists? We should probably stop at a pub. So we stopped at a pub. 
and had one point, two points, and then suddenly got back on the bike and just felt, oh, mate, it's just awful. I just don't know. I hate stopping. That's why I hate stopping. It's got too comfy. That's fair enough. Uh, but was there anything that sort of picked up from that? sort of trip was there anything that you <laughs> picked up from that trip it, tentatively was there anything good well i mean again shout out to uh to hunt um they have not paid for this this is not advertising however the thing that i'm liking is a set of test wheels that they have sent to the cyclist office which was part of the reason for going on this ride so it's a pair of limitless um wheels 48 mil deep and almost 48 mil wide these things are massive these things right once upon a time, you were worried about your tire clearance in your frame. With these wheels, you're worried about your rim clearance. I couldn't, I couldn't get these in this Linsky bike that I have that basically just about fits 25 mil um, tires. Like they, they just don't fit. But that's not a problem because they are disc brake wheels for modern disc brake bikes, not like my aged Linsky. So they will fit. And you know, just when. So I like the wheels, but what I really like is when you get that set of wheels that is just fast and you put them in a bike and it just changes the bike it's such an amazing feeling it's the next best thing to getting a new bike is swapping over the wheels or or a haircut or a haircut or in my case going to the dentist because i really like going to the dentist i don't like haircuts so much but the next best thing to a dental examination is a new set of wheels so that was nice so ditchling beacon uh -uh. new wheels yes please how about yourself mate well like you i actually did some bike packing last week uh, and when I say I did some bike packing, I used a uh, 350-pound carbon fibre towel-thin rack uh, and rode 130k down to the coast and stayed in a really bougie B&B hotel. So it was bike packing, but not in the in the conventional sense. I could have just done it with a backpack. But what I did enjoy when I did that, James, is that I did it in a cycling jersey that I've just taken, sort of taken the recipient of. So. Our good friends at Miltag, which are a sort of small cycling company, sort of clothing manufacturer based in London, they recently did a limited edition jersey that was with the artist Peter Blake. Now, do you know who Peter Blake is? I do know Peter Blake. He, uh, Sir Peter Blake, actually, Joe. Sir Peter Blake. Yeah, did yep. the cover of Sergeant Pepper. Great collagist. Has a great little museum called the Museum of Everything that travels around the country. Ever go and see that? It's great. So he also did the Stanley Road album artwork, the Paul Weller album. Uh, I do. Yeah, he is from Dartford, like the man you are talking to right now, James. They're both men of Dartford, Dartfordians. And he basically, Miltag did a limited edition jersey that was sort of a rework of some of his pop art, because he was obviously a famous pop artist, was one of the first people to use the roundel in common sort of, sort of culture, rather than it just being an RAF logo. Um, and Miltag basically made a little jersey, and I bought one. And it's a lovely jersey, and it looks really cool. Uh, I also really like about it is that Peter Blake was a cyclist when he was younger, and his brother Terry Blake was the original founder of the Dartford Wheelers Cycling Club, of which now I am a founding member of this, the new Dartford Road Cycling Club that was founded in its embers only a few years ago. So wow, the the phoenix, the phoenix from those flames. So I do enjoy using that jersey. It's a lovely looking jersey with loads of different sort of mod patterning over it. Uh, it's very up my street, and I just enjoyed using that. I also enjoyed the 
OT Duo bars. Have you ever had one of those, James? I have had the Duo bars. They, they're, yeah, they're good. They're kind of they're kind of flapjacky, aren't they? That what now? What they are is the squares bars, Rice crispy squares bars, which are basically Rice Krispies held together with marshmallow, and they do a cookies and cream flavour, and it was absolutely delicious. Oh really? Well, how how wonderful, how wonderful. Do you know I just on that note, just got to say big shout out to my mother who sent me in the post last week a Amazon packet that looked like a book. What was inside? The whole solid layer of flapjack. Oh, that well was a great that was a great day. Great flapjacks mother. Thank you very much. OTE bars, you can keep them. Okay, fair enough. Uh, and the thing I don't like was that I stopped, like yourself, when we rode down to the coast, we stopped in a pub. We got three pints of Guinness, three small Cokes draft, and three packets of crisps. Guess how much? Uh, where were you? Yeah, we was at a place called the Selsley Arms in West Dean, which is about 15 kilometres from Portsmouth, or from Haven, about 5 to 10 kilometres from Chichester. Well, okay, you're near uh, you're not near Chichester, um, Market Town. I'm I'm going I'm I'm going twenty five quid. Twenty nine pounds. Wow! And I thought twenty five was outlandish, outlandish assessment. Twenty nine pounds, and uh, the bar lady gave me. Uh, she sort of made a joke at me as well while we were there because I inquired about Smyrna Ices. <laughs> she was like, "Yeah, uh, let me just go and look on our arc." Yeah, so. Um, won't be going back there again. No. But anyway. Well, <laughs> anyway. There you go. I went, I went to a pub the other day. Had Nobby's Nuts. I haven't seen those for a while. Oh, they haven't. Did you get the chilli ones or the honey roasted? I actually got the salted. Very boring right. of me, I know. Is that, but is that the blue packet? It's the, it's the blue packet, yeah. But do you remember when Nobby's Nuts came along? They tried to sort of take dethrone KP. KP mm. were having none of it. And they and used Nobby's Nobby Holder as their... They uh... did. They did. I mean, they spent all their money on their marketing, yeah. Mm. I do, I do like uh, a knobby nut. I prefer, if I'm going to get technical on this, the Thai Sweet Chili Sensations Walker's Peanuts Ooh. are really good. Get a pack of them, Asda. There's about 2,000 calories in a bag, and you will eat the entire bag in one sitting. That's the problem. It's like, and I, because I'm you know, a few tiers down here, I'm with the Tesco Chili Nuts, the own brand Tesco are, Chili Nuts. They absolutely. are absolutely delightful. Too delightful. Asda do a jalapeno peanut oh that's they're good they're worth getting on but again you'll eat a whole bag especially if you've got them in the cupboard after a bite ride because they're so salty but um less of this and more from adam Blythe. as we said really good interview a nice discussion about his time off the bikes really candid conversation about how he came to retire and some of the sort of personal issues that he had to face while sort of trying to be a professional bike rider and we also touched upon the aqua blue debacle and how that came to a head back in 2018. So do give it a listen, and I hope you enjoy. So, so you said you're going down to going up to Scotland to do some bike packing, then down to the world. So you, I guess you're doing analyst work this time. You're not out, you're not getting out to Spain. No, I'm with GCN this time. Last time I was with NBC, so I was on the back of a motorbike, which was brilliant. Uh, but no, this time I'll just be doing a bit of analysis on the south with Orla. And then doing a little bit of commentary in between as well, which I do enjoy doing, to be honest. It's the commentaries. You can explain things as you see them um, and try and educate the audience, which is my big thing. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. But not to, you know, toot your horn too much, but I am going to toot your horn. I have been enjoying your commentary <laughs> this year, Adam, because... Thank you. 
I like how excited you get. And I remember, I can't remember the race this year, but you apologised after with a tweet because I think you got a bit too excited and started to sort of like <laughs> laugh and squeal. But I must say, it's really refreshing to have someone who's actually uh, excited to see what's happening in front of them rather than just sort of... No, thank you. It's a, Yeah, I love doing it. It's, it's a funny... It's not funny doing it, I guess, but I can still imagine, you know, being at the front of those races if you've got good legs and it all kicking off. And that's what sort of gets me excited a little bit. And it's not like I'm in the race, but I just know those riders that will be in the front group, how, number one, they'll be suffering, obviously, but it's more the days when it's unexpected or it is expected. And then, you know, something happens like it you imagined it to, and that's the exciting bit for me. And then just being able to... Like I said, I, I don't think there's an audience within cycling that is, you've got the newcomers, which we have to, you know, commentate for, obviously. And then we've got the people that know a lot about cycling. So you, you do get a lot of people that know about cycling, giving it the old chat. Well, obviously that's happening, this, that and the other. And it's like, yeah, but we have to explain this because cycling's growing. We want it to grow. So we need to explain the situation. So it's, for me, it's just about educating people that are new to cycling but also educating people about a situation where they might think know what's happening but then telling them the reasons why it's happening it's not just the obvious everyone can see the obvious on tv so it's it's not pointless saying that but then it's explaining why and then what repercussions it might have and just what might be happening in the team car the race radio that kind of stuff looking at the body language of riders and seeing you know, if someone's suffering before they dropped or that kind of stuff. And then just, you know, I'm not afraid to be wrong either. I think that's it runs through quite a bit of commentary where people often afraid to maybe get it wrong by just saying the obvious. And I think if you do that, it's number one, it's obvious what's happening. Number two, we can see it's happening. So put your neck out on the line a little bit and give your honest opinion. I think, I hope that's what I do, but yeah, back to what you said, I generally just love cycling and get massively excited about it, especially not so much climbing days so much, but more the days where something might happen beforehand, flat days, crosswind days, days in the Giro, which are like on the yeah. gravel, all that kind of stuff. Those those like types of racing are brilliant, and I, I love those days. You also know like 75% of the peloton still. So I always find like yeah I, I do I hard. find like while like Sean Kelly obviously legend amazing commentator your your comp calling guys that you know and you've raced against or raced with so you're like I know exactly what Greg Van Avermaet's thinking right now or going to do right now yeah I wouldn't say quite exactly know what he's thinking or going to do but it's more or just understanding their body language a little bit I was never I was never a big engine I never. I never was the best cyclist, but I believed I was the best. And I think that's, you know, goes into a lot of things uh, from my results base. You know, if you if you back yourself, if you believe you're the best, even if you're not, you're going to do so much better than if you're questioning yourself all the time. Um, but through that, I learned how to read people, how to read people's body language on the bike, the way they're sitting. And um yeah, just analyze it a bit more. I was always one, like I said, I didn't have a big engine. I was Mark Sajant when I first turned pro. He's the manager of Lotto, not anymore next year, yeah. actually. But he described me as um, 
a one two five motorbike that is able to keep up with five hundred cc motorbikes that's just able to put himself in that right position and read the race quite well and I think that's generally what I was quite good at and being good at that was able I was able then to read riders a little bit as I said which um, which does help when you're commentating yeah I mean having that um, that experience and just the knowledge of racing very much from the inside for so many years is clearly key but it doesn't necessarily translate you know Joe and I know about this you can know about bikes but someone sticks a camera or microphone in your face it's not always easy to communicate that so how do you how did you learn to become a pundit? Did you kind of sit at home and commentate to yourself with the TV sound off or do you have professional training or how does, how does it work? Do you, do you have to audition even? I actually started back in, I think it was 2016. I got asked to be on Eurosport back then. It wasn't GCN, but they asked if I could just come and, you know, talk about the stage and never did. I did a little bit of commentary, but not a lot. I was just analysing it after with, with Jonathan Edwards at the time. And I did that for a few years um and then I worked alongside Rob Hatch who for me is the best commentator on the planet he's there's a lot of stuff that I don't think the general public notices and it's how he opens up conversation with people and Rob knows the answers to 90% of the the questions that he'll ask but he'll ask it anyway he'll ask me he'll ask whoever's in comms with and it's not then I talk about as I said about the obvious it's not about the obvious then it's about explaining not the obvious and the repercussions and educating people on it and Rob is so good at that and so good at knowing riders and it's working with Rob has uh it helped me massively he always used to give me tips and I I regularly ask for feedback so if I ever do commentary I'm always asking about feedback if, if it's Rob if it's Phil Liggett if it's the guys at NBC the producer there he's amazing um but I'm constantly just asking what can I do better even if it's something tiny or minor or whatever it might be you know it's it all helps me grow and yeah I think as I said working with Rob really helped me and he gave me some great feedback and then it just translated I think it's with people as well especially the analysis stuff on the sofa with GCN it's all is amazing she's so good at what she does and she helps bring the best out of you but I do think that the the combinations on the sofa are great as well the energy and I think it's like any workplace really if you've got guys that you love working with um, it makes the job a lot easier and I think you know working alongside Orla and Brad we all generally have the same view but we will also give different opinions not afraid to challenge each other and I think you know, having Sir Bradley Wiggins sat next to you on the sofa, a lot of people might be like, oh, no, he's he's obviously right. And it's like, whoa, it doesn't matter if he's right. It's an opinion. Mm. And so learning that from Brad as well and doing a few podcasts with him, he's, uh, yeah, it just helps. It's just doing it more and more and more. It's like anything, the more you do it, the better you get it, I guess. But no, there was no training, no nothing. It was just a case of analysing the racing and being able to talk about it and, yeah, as I keep saying, just educate people on a race situation. Did um did you hear Rob hatching comms before you met him in person? Yeah, because I'm sorry about Rob. I went the first time I went to the Giro with Euros. Or I walked into a hotel. It was like an industrial estate somewhere, and I walked in. Didn't know who to call. Didn't know who to speak to. Didn't know what anyone looked like. Part pretty much from Jonathan Edwards, and his English bloke came over to me, and he was like, "All right, Adam, how's it going? You're all right." Like, yeah, I'm good, thanks. Just checking in. He's like, oh, very good. Uh, racing's been good, hasn't it? This, that, and the other. And then, oh, Smithy was there, Brian 
when Brian came up to me and said, hey, uh, the friend, you've obviously met Rob. And I was like, what? He doesn't sound like this. And Rob's massively northern. Yeah. I don't know if you've heard his normal accent <laughs> before, but he is the most northern person he can. And I just did not know who he was. Um, so, yeah, it was quite a shock when I first met him. I was like, bloody hell, you put on a very posh voice. That is, I, I have the same thing. I met, I obviously recognised him and went up to him and said, are you all right, Rob? And then I just got this, like, Blackburn voice back at me and I was like, yeah. hang about. This isn't yeah, the same, yeah, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's Rob. He's brilliant. He's amazing. How's, um, what do you prefer, though, the comms or being on the motorbike? Because the last two years you've been with NBC at the Tour de France on the back of a moto. Yeah, which, the most... from your from your Instagram stories, it seems like you absolutely love. Yeah, I do love it. It's a lot, a lot of fun. It's uh, it's scary at times going down those descents, but the challenging thing is with commentary. So it's with the back of the motorbike, you don't actually see a lot. Mm. So you're always sat on the back of the motorbike, generally next to a team car. You can go up to the brake, this, that, and the other. But I don't want to be that guy that keeps going past on a motorbike. It's annoying <laughs> for the riders, and it's just a bit stressful. So we have the um, when I'm on the motorbike, we have I have the commentary team uh, that I can hear talking about the race live. So I hear all that live commentary. Then I have the producer from NBC in my ear talking to me if he needs something mm. or wants me to talk. And we've got race radio to listen to, uh, so we can hear if there's anything before I see it. Uh, and then what else? Three, four. And then the um, the motorbike driver if he wants to talk to me, him as well. Uh, and then the ASO if there's ever any problems. So there's a lot of things to think about, and mm. it's always it's hard when it's when the racing's on because you know they'll come to the motorbike and ask you for feedback and they'll ask you to give you a thing. But ultimately, I can't see it, so I'm just going off of what the commentary is and then analysing that, but without it being in view at all. So it's very much trying to read the race through what I can hear of it and then talk about it. But most of the time, it's it's generally if there's problems or if people are dropped that might not be on telly and mm. things like that, then I can really report back and give an input through that and the discussions that the commentary team might be having, I can chip in on that. But it's very much, it's quite difficult, um, but it's a lot of fun. It's after on the hard, long days, and especially the days that are raining, I have to, you have to remember that people would pay a lot, a lot, a lot of money <laughs> to be sat on the back of that bike in the middle of the Tour de France peloton. So it is, um, it's a fantastic job. And the, the guys at NBC, uh, they're all amazing. They're great, great guys and easy to work with. How does a, how does a day on the bike compare uh, to a day, well, a day on the moto compare to a day on the bike when you're uh, talking grand tours and big stages? Do you kind of, do you get up <laughs> even earlier than the riders? Would you, how would you rate your stress levels? Um, you know, I'm assuming it's, yeah, it's not the easiest thing. You just have different. five different radio channels to contend with, plus actually having to uh, dissect and, and regale what's going on. Yeah, so a lot of the time it's quite easy. You know, we just generally rake up 8 o'clock between 9 o'clock, depending on the transfer. We get ourselves there, sit in the village, try and gather as much information as we can. Last year I was doing the interviews before the start. Mm. So I'd interview all the riders and jump on the motorbike, which was fun. Um and then, yeah, jump on the motorbike, do all that stuff, back to the hotel after, and then you'd eat in a hotel, go and find some food. So it's it's a different kind of hard, I think. It's, you know, the riders, they just have to concentrate on riding the bikes, and then that's it. They've done everything else is done for them, except wiping their asses. So they generally have an easy life. You don't have day-to-day stresses of all the 
that shit, you know. So when we were there, one of the guys' van broke down and we all had to get in a van together, go and get another van. So it's all the little bits that you never really, it's just normal life, I guess. You just have to look after yourself. Um, so they're just long days. And I think it's it's not physically hard, but it's just like mentally quite, um, mentally not hard, I'd say, but tiring. You know, you get you get in the in the car after the day and it's just like, just put my headphones in and don't talk to anyone for a good hour or whatever it might be, just so I can be like, ah. What's your Moto man's name? Who's, who's your Moto? Nassim. Nassim. Because we have um, we uh, know quite a lot of, obviously, like the photographers who are on back of motorbikes. And, um, yeah. And they say, some of them, like, you live or die by your Moto man. And yeah, they, they can make yeah. three weeks hell or absolute heaven. So what's Nassim like? How did you find him? Did he find you? Uh, it was good actually. It was just organised by the media, the motor media. Sorry, the guy look after all the mainly all the races on all tours and one days and stuff. Um, and he was good. He'd not the first year when I did it last year. He'd not done many races, mm. so it was kind of stressful in terms of how to move around as a motorbike. He was very by the rules, and he didn't have that natural flow about him. Mm. So it was fucking hard work, to be honest. It was scary for one. And then just contending with, you know, like me tapping him on the back to let riders, let no riders come in, all that kind of shit. So that was difficult. And it was quite, I was stressed out last year with it. I just, I just wanted to get off the motorbike a lot of the time. So I was like, Fuck, this is awful. Uh, but he did a lot more races in between. And then this year, he was brilliant. I could just generally just point, I just tell him what to do, basically. Do this, do that, don't mm. do that. Um, stop here and there wouldn't be a question of if it was on a little slant in the road he'd just stop and one of the nice things about me is well about him sorry is that when I'm on the motorbike I don't generally like to talk to the motorbike rider just because if you do you've got to turn the other channels down so you can speak to him so unless there's a problem mm. or unless I want to talk to him he wouldn't talk back to me ever which is brilliant um, mm. but this year he had to go to the Olympics halfway through so I changed to an old guy Patrice and he just used to sing and chat and oh, absolute nightmare. And he was a great motorbike rider, but it's just in terms of then what you get used to. Yeah, yeah. Something new, you're just like, oh, God. But he was brilliant as well. He was fantastic. But yeah, he's um, Nassim is, is a fantastic bloke. And I've always thought, with, with the moto stuff, do you, like, do you have a, like, a lunch packed in the, the little box at the back and stuff like that? <laughs> oh, this is the worst bit about it. I tried not to eat breakfast just because if I ate breakfast, I'd generally try and get lunch at about 11 just before I jumped on the motorbike, um, which in these start towns, small French town, is not always easy. So it'll be a baguette, pizza, whatever it is. But then I think because of stress, you get quite hungry quickly. So you wouldn't eat through the day, a couple of waters, and as soon as you finish, just a little bite to eat and then straight to dinner. So I put on quite a bit of weight. So. We remember um, Matt Heyman. Uh, who's now a DS, obviously, at Bike Exchange. He, like yeah. one of his first races, he ate and then had a gel in the car and then got a case of the shits. And then <laughs> from now on, is like, won't eat and will only drink water when he's DSing. So I'm always of the similar opinion, like if you're on the road and you can't be like smashing baguettes, smashing coffees. But then it's also such a long day that if you're not like eating and drinking... Just yeah, yeah, stay on top of it. Yeah, you definitely need to stay on top of it. But it's just once you get into a routine, it's not too bad. It's just yeah, if you if you get hungry, ultimately we can stop. If we get hungry, we can just 
go ahead of the race, stop and get some food. But generally, I've never had that problem, luckily. I've got plenty in reserve. Yeah. And have you, um, we've, we also heard once, who is it? Graham Watson, the old photographer, once yeah. told us that he, he saw a police motorbike do a wheelie um, behind the Tour de France peloton. Have you seen any sort of those antics yet with some of no. the naughty gendarmerie? Uh, no, we, the gendarmes are brilliant. They're so good on the motorbikes, but it's the, the commissaires and all that kind of stuff, you know, not the commissaires, the officials, which they direct. You won't see it on the telly, but there's always a guy in red and he lets people through, doesn't let people through. And there's a massive fight always to keep a position towards the front, uh, towards the motorbikes, just in case any action happens and you're always there. Um, so there's that massive fight. We got shunted behind from one of the, officials on one day which was a laugh and it's one that had just been not a pain but just really annoying throughout the whole tour when he did that he didn't say sorry or anything and then after I just went up to him I was like you know you can apologize for what you've done and he's like oh it's just the bike this that and the other I was like you don't just randomly walk into a bar smack someone from behind and then don't apologize so yeah I had a bit of yeah I don't know it's just I guess it's like bike racing, these things happen, but ultimately, if, you know, he just slammed into the back of us and I was like, dude, you've not even said sorry. Like, fair enough, you've hit us. It's not your fault, but fuck, say sorry, man. <laughs> so what do you think? Um, so that, yeah, those sorts of things are beyond your control, but I guess from a commentary point of view, you end up doing things that, you know, you, you kind of go, I wish I hadn't have said that. What's been, because we spoke to uh, Phil Liggett on this, on this podcast and he said that one of his earliest kind of gaffes was um commentating on a, a crystal palace crit and saying there goes the world champion breaking wind at the front which obviously is is pretty tame by today's standards but have you made any of those those kinds of gaffes uh not particularly no the, i think the worst one i've had when i said brad and adam coming in your ears <laughs> that was probably the worst i've made um but no luckily i've not really said anything too bad yet Sounds like a bit like local radio. Sounds like a little tagline. Yeah, like Peter Kay. Yeah. Peter Kay, coming in your ears. <laughs> um, Adam, when we got you, when we sort of like contacted you to get you on the podcast, obviously we want to chat to you about uh, what you've been up to now. But one of the things that James and I have always want to talk to you about is that you famous, well, not famously, famously amongst us, had a little bit of a tete-a-tete with our former colleague, Stu Bowers, about the yeah. use of a free t strada one by... Uh, group set in the professional yeah. peloton so we wanted to talk yeah. to you about that today because it made us laugh no end in the mainly of how yeah. annoyed Stu got about it and how militant he is around one by we can say that now because he no longer works for us but um <laughs> just a little bit of context obviously when you were at aqua blue in 2018 you were using the 3t strada bike which as you may or may not know only has a one by group set so it only has one ring at the front uh, it caused a few issues for the team, I believe, in that <laughs> season. That, yeah. uh, and our erstwhile colleague, Stu, was uh, a staunch defender of the technology, to say the least, uh, and claimed it was absolutely fine to use in a World Tour race. So, That's uh, funny, it, did he ever do a World Tour race? <laughs> <laughs> Don't think he did. Right, I'll get one thing straight. One by and this 3T bike was brilliant for riding round if you're not racing. Yeah. I never said it wasn't a good bike. I said it's not great. Like, the bike was brilliant. It was just a one bike that was absolutely shit. Um, 
I've got one by my gravel bikes, which I'm a fan of. You never go in more than 55k an hour constantly, so it's fine. Uh, and you're always going up steeper climbs, so the jumps between gears are not that bad. But going racing, Tour of Yorkshire, I rode a 50 ring with a 10 sprocket on the back and a 48 on. And it's 10 speed. So you imagine going from a 10 to a 48. Mm. Like the jumps are ridiculous. The chain angle is stupid. And doing Tour of Yorkshire, you know, you'd be, you can roll along the flat, 55, 60 k's an hour, going down drags, flat out, pedaling as hard as you can. And then you can be going up a hill that's 25% in gradient. Mm. If you're going up a hill that's in 25% gradient, you drop down at 22.5%, you aren't going to want to go up one. You go from 48 to a 44, that's a difference of like 15 RPM. It's huge. And if you're doing that, that's on one climb. So if you've got six climbs within the day where you're doing that, you're just going to kill your legs. And that's what it ultimately did. It was fine for racing on flat. It was fine for racing time trials, all that kind of stuff. But anything where you needed a constant change in gears that wasn't huge, it just killed your legs. And that was my point with it. But I think with Stu Bowers, it was, I think he was gifted the bike, wasn't he? He got it to try. He never actually bought it. Yeah, he would have reviewed it for our magazine, right, James? Yeah, yeah, he, oh, yeah, he reviewed yeah, yeah. it, but he gave it back. But yeah, he had, he did have the bike to ride, but he would have ridden it in a kind of um, amateur context, I guess, for want of a better word. Yeah, I mean, look, Stu was, he raced a little bit. I don't know quite what he did. I know him ever so slightly. Um, but with all due respect to him, he's never raced at that level. Um, so I don't understand how he could give an opinion on World Tour racing when he's not even been in a World Tour race. Was it, was it, a, um, was it like a common thing between uh, there was 16 of you on the team? Was it just conversations constantly about... Oh, these... yeah, it was a nightmare. It was just made everything hard, you know, and I think if you look now, I think Trek, Segafredo, they went onto one by for, I think, a year. John Dagan called his chain slipped off coming down the Poggio. That was his San Remo over. And I don't think there is one single team in the World Tour Peloton at the minute that's using one by anymore. So Stu Bowers is going to have to go and have words with people again, tell them how good it is. <laughs> uh, just when, when you get your, your kit at the beginning of a year, when you signed with Aqua Blue, did you know that you were going to be racing one by? And when the bike showed up, what's the reaction? amongst the riders is it just like ah, you know it's a tool we jump on it we ride it or is it like we know this is not going to be good uh so when i signed we were on ridley's and envy wheels it was brilliant uh, and then the next year we went on to these 3t bikes um and look they were fast bikes and they were like capable bikes um but it's just the the gear and you just couldn't do it and it was you know i think because it was new when we first got them I said straight away, I was like, this is not good. And then you have a couple of guys, oh, it's great, this, that, and the other. But it's just, you know, you don't want to be that guy in front of sponsors that's like, oh, this is crap, this, that, and the other, and all that kind of stuff. But it's very much within the pro peloton, even chats between bikes now. I think Cav's a good example of how we always used to say the specialised bike is always so good and this, that, and the other. And I think there is that there always has been that chat as oh, that bike so fast that that team's using there that much quicker because of that, especially in time trials. So it's, it is what you get given and ultimately that's your job to perform on whatever kit you get. So you can't change it. You've just got to live with it. Um, I think there was a chance that Aqua Blue were talking about doing a tour at the start of the year and they started to make the one with two chain rings on. 
Yeah, uh, and then we didn't do the tour, and I think that's how they all fell out with three uh, T through not doing the tour, and yeah, just turned into a bit of a mess. I think for them. Well, yeah, that, I mean that team famously came to an end in 2018 when um, the owner and like the back of Rob Delaney famously left the team's WhatsApp group, uh, <laughs> having announced that the team was no longer going to be running. Like I think it was like two days before Tour of Britain. Yeah, and then there was like threats of free tea taking the team to court, and then 16 riders who basically just didn't have a contract for 2019 in like I think it was like September or August. And then there was talks of the t- takeover from Van Art's team at the time, Sniper, and then Aqua Blue, no one knowing that it was actually a company that sold stuff online. And, and then also you got a, a millionaire who was maybe impatient. Where do you now looking back at it, like three years on? How was that for you at that time? Take us back to like 2018 September. You in a well in a pro tour team. You've raced raced the Grand Tour the year before. Got some good results. Now suddenly you're on with no team. How did that sort of unfold for you? Now looking back, uh, yeah, it was a hard year. Um, there's a lot of like stressful things throughout the year. Um, I'd signed a contract for more money and it didn't happen and then after Tour Qatar so it's end of middle of March they said okay we'll do it so sign this new contract start getting a bit more money which was nice and then we got halfway through the year another three months later and the team boss said to me you're not uh, you're not good enough you're going back to your old contract I was like oh, how am I, what do you mean I'm not good enough like what am I not doing he said you're not training properly you're not doing this that and the other um so yeah, I went back to my old money, which we tried to fight with the UCI, but it was just a pain. Was that was that a DS who um, came up and said that? Or was that the owner? That was the owner. Because yeah. I can ima- imagine then, if this a DS, if you got someone who's involved, but when it's like a, a benev- like a millionaire owner, it's a bit harder to take, I guess. Yeah, Rick Rick the lady wasn't a bad guy, just very business driven, and I think that's how he viewed the company and he wanted uh, I'd say he's patient, but he wanted something from you more yeah. all the time, which is fair enough. That's how he ran his business, and that's what's worked for him. That's how he's made loads of money. But yeah, after that, after he reduced my contract, I then won a race in Belgium, yeah. um, Elston Ronda, I think, the one around Dunkirk, I think it was. And if you look at the picture, I look really angry in it. <laughs> well, that's probably because of that. It's just like, come on, you said I wasn't training. I've just done this. And then that was fine because it was a flat race on that chain ring. And then we went, <laughs> after that was the Nationals around, I forgot where it was now. Um, the yeah, I forgot anyway. But, uh, no, it was way after that. I won the year before, so the year after Stockton. Yeah. Um, yeah. I forgot where it was. I went to the Nationals as one of Connor Swift one and Ah uh, yeah, yeah, I remember it. It was like a Stanford. Stanford. Uh, yeah, like, it was up north somewhere. Yeah. Up on the Riles, that was the name of the climb, the Riles. Um and we got in this breakaway and went up this climb a couple of times. It was quite a rolly course. And that I remember I rode fifty four eleven and a twenty seven because I just wanted a like a constant change up of gears. I didn't want big jumps. Um and I remember I almost caught, I got within like two or three seconds of him coming into the finish and I just blew up. I just couldn't get him. So I ran second. But mm. I still believe if I had a small chain ring up the hills on those first couple of laps, I'd have had a bit more in the legs rather than grinding 54, 
27 up these climbs so I think that's you know another thing where, where I look back and think oh god what could you have done different mm. I couldn't have done anything different in that situation but maybe if I'd have had a small chain wrench I could have spanned my legs a little bit I might have been able to catch him I might have been national champion mm. two years on the trot which would have made a difference going into the next year and then yeah it all just fell apart after that it just the team I think the bikes were not good we got promised these other bikes uh, there was a few of the double chambering ones that we got and then they fell out with 3T and yeah, I don't know the ins and outs of it but that was it Could, could you see the seams coming apart on the bus or was it like was it oh, very yeah, God, yeah. was it have you been in that situation was that the first time you've kind of been in that situation because before that the, like the World Tour teams you've been in were have been very well BMC was still existing until very recently Amiga Pharma still are Lotto Sudal so they were stable teams is this the first time you'd seen one of the which is a very common issue in cycling one of these teams that are kind of yeah I mean it just just stopped immediately that was a hard part of it it wasn't we kind of knew some of it was happening in the background and all this kind of stuff and then yeah it just stopped and then that was it finished so um, I'm not going to say it was a shock but it was very much not run till the end of the year which is normally the how all teams do it, but it just stopped and that was it. Done, dusted, finished. Do you think, I mean, really painful experience to go through, but is it something that you wish you, you know, had never embarked upon? I mean, how how could your career have panned out differently? Or, you know, is it just one of those things that's, you know, bike racing as much as crashing as teams, unfortunately, don't have that stability all the time? Yeah, I think it's just one of those things, isn't it? I think it was just a bit unfortunate. We had a great year the year before there with Aqua Blue. Um, and everyone was excited. And then it just slowly got worse throughout the year in that team. But it, like you say, it happens in a lot of teams. Um, just not as sudden and as quickly as that. that it just stops. Um, with Stefan Defenil's doping case, that did not help the situation either yeah, that was- uh, within that team. and. That was a weird one. How was that? Yeah, I mean, it was, yeah, it is what it is. He's, every, all the news is everywhere about it. So it's, um, yeah, just is what it is. But luckily you kind of felt, well, you did fall on your feet because you managed to be, you managed to get a contract with Lotto. So you managed to go back to the team that you'd been at earlier in your career. Yeah. Um, which was, which must have been quite sort of heartening for you because obviously, as I said, there was like 16 guys, all of which, suddenly found they didn't have a contract when by that point most of the contracts had been signed and most of the spots had been taken. Yeah, it was good. It was it was nice to be back in the team. It was um it was a bit of a relief to be back in an organized team, a stable team. A lot of shit going on in my life that year it didn't help me as a bike rider as such. So it was um yeah, I'm not gonna look back and say it was disappointing, but it wasn't how I wanted that year to go for sure. Mm-hmm. Help you make the decision to retire when you did because you were quite still quite young. Were you 29 when you, yeah, 20, yeah, 29 at the time? Yeah, we just had um, we just had twins in the family, and how we live, we don't have a lot of help nearby. Mm. Um, and my missus was finding it very, very tough. She had quite very bad postnatal, mm. so for me, it was just a, a case of trying to support her. And I remember being in tour of Romandy, um on the first day and I'd not done enough training whatsoever. I was just, you know, just doing loops around near where I live, just 
checking in and making sure everything was all right at yeah. home. Um, and within that, I just never trained well enough uh, to do anything. Uh, so when I got to tour Romandy, I remember being away. It was my second night there, and my missus just rang me, and she was she's firing it tough. And you know, I just I just went to the director and said, "Look, I'm I'm really sorry, but I'm just going home. Mm. I'm not even asking. I'm just telling you I'm going home because I can't." bike riding is bike riding I can always jump on my bike but I can't always be there for yeah. my family when I need to be um so that was that really and then family is a lot more important to me normal life is a lot more important to me than bike riding as I said you can jump on a bike whenever you want it's not the be all and end all um which family is that's the only thing that matters to me that's what I still work hard for now and that was how I approached it and I think from that moment on I knew that it was the end of my career pretty much it's quite interesting you say about how bike riding is bike riding but the, and having the bigger picture as the perspective of like your family because I think that's something that's only really coming to light in the sport today. And I like yeah. you look at something like Tom de Moulin who went, actually, you know what, I need to take time off. I need to mm. step back from the bike. And you do see cases of riders and you probably know guys who were in the peloton before who just suffered through and just was like, I need to keep racing my bike and probably had other stuff falling apart around them and didn't make that decision. So yeah, cycling's a very private world uh, mm. in terms of we, you, we think we know everything about a bike rider because of social media, but we know nothing. Mm. I know there's a few riders out there that, you know, didn't see their family and kids because of COVID for like near on 12 weeks. Mm. Um, I don't care what anyone says. You don't see your family in 12 weeks. You're not going to be happy. Uh, you know, you can get on with the job. You can do what you build always want to be with your family always want to speak to and that is the hardest part about being a bike rider even when you are home you still need to train you still need to rest you still need to do all that so family life has to take a back seat I think if you're a pro cyclist um definitely becomes easier I think the more money you earn Mm. you're able to let them travel more you're able to get them help you're able to go away in your own training camps and take your family which makes it easier but even teams now they don't want your family there and all that kind of jazz which is it absolutely baffles me if if you want the best out of a rider the number one thing it's like with any walk of life I think you need to be happy in what you're doing um you have to ask what makes people happy and is that something as simple as you know riding a different set of handlebars is it something as wearing a certain set of glasses a certain color or is it seeing your family more this that, and the other so I don't think really mental health is looked upon in cycling in terms of how it should be in terms of what other sports do I think it's huge um and I do not think at all it's it's not that it's not taken seriously but bike riding's always been a business and the man who's running that team whoever it might be they want the best out of their employees it's also it's a sport with a quite an old school mentality isn't it as well so it's yeah, I think, the, the, I think that idea not. of suffering, like, and I, this is slightly different, but crashing and then sort of the way you celebrate a rider sort of struggling through a grand tour with yeah. serious injury. Whereas maybe now there's there's more of a, there's been a shift towards actually they're admirable for stepping off. Someone like Primoz Roglic could have probably battled through the rest of the Tour de France. Actually, you got to sort yeah, of applaud think, him for being like, actually, I've got to take care of my body or I've got to take care of my mind, which is what others have done. Yeah, I think that's that's cycling definitely in the way it always has been. But I think that, that's more 
I don't think that's the mental health side of it. I think it's just a case of, okay, let's look at the big picture here. You can still win the welter. So to get him off the bike, what's the point? He's not mm-hmm. going to do anything. He's not going to be able to help. So let's get him off. I think the mental side of things, it's everything that's not orientated around the bike. It's not so much the suffering or that. It's just a case of how is your normal life, which is it's not really taken into consideration as much as it should be, I don't think. I was going to ask, is there any any provision from the teams for for this? Because obviously you'll have um, sports psychologists in on a team camp helping people visualise winning, for example, putting you know working on anything from you know sort of mindfulness practice um, through to memory recall, for example. I've heard, but is there any provision for looking after riders post a crash or looking after riders? when something's going on in their private lives? I think there is in a couple of teams. Uh, I know Ineos are really working hard at the minute to, to manage the mental health, to make sure the family life at home or whatever it might be, they're doing as much as they can, I'm going to say, uh, to support that. Um, but in terms of, I think after crashes, everything's the same in, in every team. You know, you've got your team doctors that check in on you, you've got the... Uh, physios you can go and see all that kind of stuff it's all the riders I think since I started that's always been the same there's always been that get you back on the bike as quick as possible but I think with the mental side of things and in home life it's not really been touched upon yet the it reminds me of Brian Holm told us once he said the perfect bike rider lives at home with his mum and dad and doesn't have a girlfriend until the age of 35 (laughs) <laughs> it was like that's that's what almost they need to do because he's experienced it when he was a rider when he suddenly got had a kid he was like well do i really want to descend this mountain at 100 kilometers an hour uh you know and you you start to have yeah. other stuff in your life where you actually and it puts stuff in perspective whereas if you just race as you did when you were probably 16 17 carefree until your late 30s you don't those things don't come yeah. into your head do they no, I guess I think why we're seeing a lot of young riders come through nowadays as well is that I think there's a, a generation thing around cycling where you turn pro and it was you, you get a bit more money and all that kind of stuff and you can live a nicer life. And I think when I was young, you know, you, there was other things involved. There was drinking, there was party and that kind of stuff. But I think the younger generation now, the likes of Pidcock, he's not really done that whole party and he's not bothered about that kind of stuff. And I think there's loads of riders that are like that. Mm younger riders especially they live like a pro from when they're 16 17 so he doesn't have any responsibilities he can go home he's got his girlfriend he's got his xbox he can do a bit of gaming and he just lives for the bike and i think it becomes easier for those guys without kids for sure and without bigger commitments at home to be able to concentrate on it whereas people with families you know you go home and it's not a rest it's um back to being a dad or back to being a mum whatever it is if you're a woman of course so when you wait because when you break through was there still kind of sort of that old school mentality of like the like on the first couple of training camps of the year you'd still be able to go out and you know get on the the vodkas and the beers and uh yeah 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 for sure they used to turn up to training camp and people that'll be the first time they stepped on a bike yeah. Turn up to a training camp now, and if you can't ride at 350 watts for half an hour, you're doing something wrong, and it's like, Christ. Do you, do you kind There's of a lot are, changed? Are you happy that that was your experience, though? That you did have the going to team camps, and yeah, you trained, you know, you played, you worked hard on the bike, and you did your five hours, but there was the, you know, 
let's all go down to the bar, have a few, like, you know, drink. Oh, yeah, God, yeah, I'm so few. happy about it. <laughs> yeah. It's just normal, isn't it? I think, you know, it's a training camp's there to train and do all that kind of stuff, but it's also a chance to get to know your teammates, all that kind of stuff, and not take it too seriously, whereas now it's, you know, everything's about the bike, and mm. that's the way it's going, and that's the way it needs to go, obviously, but I think it's... Um, it becomes a place where you come away from the training camp, you know, you've done good work. You've not had the nicest time, I guess. Very different. On that note, though, who's the who's the best rider that you know in terms of being able to hold their drink? Because cyclists are infamously <laughs> small men. So, um, Life Hoster. Yeah. was very good at holding his drink. He was, um, he was one of the best. <laughs> And who's uh, um, who's who's on the opposite end of the spectrum? Finney, terrible. Taylor Finney. Yeah, he wasn't good. <laughs> but he loved to drink, so it's fine. Excellent. Perfect. Do I always wondered like how how often riders do actually show up on the start line a little bit hungover? Because you know, way back in the day, you've got uh, stories of Hino partying into the night and Onkatil on the champagne and stuff, and. These guys yeah. were kind of able to do that because obviously think... they were the patrons, but. Yeah, I think the early 2000s, there was a lot of that, but no chance nowadays. You can't do it. I think if you turn up to a race on Gobi, you are gone. <laughs> yeah, it, there's no is, point in turning up. Is there a bit of you that's like, oh, I got out when I got out at a good time? When you look at like Remco and Van Aert, Van der Poel, Pogacar, are you because obviously there's a lot of guys that you raced with and of your generation now that are yeah. finding that it's like their step up is pretty mental and there are guys that three four years ago were consistently like top 10 at Flanders Roubaix and are now you know having to put in yeah I, lo- I, I loved it when I was there and I think I'd love to start now if I was mm-hmm. young um so I was 20s again I'd love to start now but it's just everything is so intense now it's just all about all about the bike all about the training all about the recovery every little bit of your life is looked upon as a bike riding you've got to do it to your maximum because if you don't you're not going to be the way you should be so given that how surprised were you to see Cav do what he did this year surprised not so much surprised I knew he had it in him but he was I surprised that he did it at the tour mm. um, he was good he was always being good he's never really lost it I think it's Cav's very much a person that works on his head mm. you know like, like I said he believes he's the best and if he doesn't 30% off of it before he even starts knowing that he's the best um, we all know how much he loves quick step we all know how much he thrives in being that team and I think that was a deciding thing for Cav being in a place where he's able to express himself and be himself and be the rider that he wants mm. to be these were the differences for Cav that made him into the rider that he is now um, being able to be Cav without a burden on his shoulder almost just do what you got to do and we're not going to expect anything more off you whereas before I think everyone was we expected a few things for a few years and it never came and that carried on his shoulders for a long time. Well, it was the first time in his career since probably T-Mobile where he weren't a star rider. Like, he went into yeah. a team with Julian Alaphilippe as world champion and, like, Remco. Whereas even at, like, Bahrain, he's joined and he's the he's the, the poster yeah. boy. So he, he did seem think... to enjoy that he was, like... I remember at the beginning of the season, he kept telling everyone, oh, I'm not here to win races, I'm here to, like help Fabio Jakobsen teach people, be like sort of a leader. And then yeah. obviously he goes and does what he does at the tour. 
Yeah, I think the best way to teach is setting by example, isn't it? <laughs> so even though he's not doing it, he probably is still teaching. Um, but yeah, Cavs Cav is, you know, he's, he's the greatest sprinter of all time, I'd say, quite easily. Um, I think just to see him back on that top step, it's phenomenal. And what he's done for, for himself, his family, the sport, all of that, and setting an example to just not give up. Is a is a fantastic example of that, and um, yeah, I am absolutely over the moon and thrilled to see him back on that top step because he he definitely deserves it. So we're going to change track a bit. We chatted about Rick Delaney earlier, who was certainly a you know a character for the very short amount of time he was in the sport was quite a big character. I remember him putting out a lot of tweets, which caught a lot of attention. But yeah. Rick, Rick was not the only character that you've raced for in your career. You've raced for quite a few, actually. When I looked through your, uh, yeah. I was looking back through your uh, sort of teams that you raced for. I was like, wow, you've ridden for some of the big names. So, first off, I'd, I have to ask you, Oleg Tinkle. What what's Oleg Tinkle actually like? <laughs> he's good fun. He's a good guy. He's um, he's just Russian and he's a businessman. <laughs> but he was good. He was. Um, I remember sat in Torino Adriatico in Forte di Marmi, a team time trial, and it went past his house. And he came for dinner one night and Sagan's there and blah, blah, blah. And he was complaining about how much, in front of Peter, how much he was paying him, how riders are all paid too much, this, that and the other, and how he can't get riders for um, uh, the minimum contract, which he could have, but he, I think he quite, secretly quite liked spending the money, but he always complained about it. Um, did, he, did he ever take you on his yacht? Did you ever go on his... Uh... No, I never went on his yacht, but that evening he complained about all that and then bought two bottles of wine that cost like 30 grand for both of them. <laughs> and we're like, there's pretty much, you've got a rider sat on your table, but yet you complain about the money. So he's just, it's his money though. That was the thing with it. I think he, it was his own personal money and putting his own personal money into something definitely changes the way you see something, I guess, and what you expect from something. Do you remember he, um, I remember when he offered, I think he offered Alberto Contador, Nairo Quintana and Chris Froome, like an insane amount of money if they all agreed to race all three Grand Tours in one season. Because <laughs> I, I think he was like literally, he was bored with how cycling was at the time. Because he was when obviously Chris Froome was dominating the tour. And he was like, yeah. I think it was like over a million. He was like, if you all race all three Grand Tours, I'll give whoever is best out of all three a million pounds, which was um, a, a classic Oleg Tinkoff move, it felt like. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me, yeah. I think that's just him. That's his personality. He wanted to see racing back to back to the good old fun days, I guess, where you know it went down to the wire each year, which it does a little bit more now, especially with the young kids coming along. Not so much this year, but I think we'll see something exciting at the um, at the Puelta, which I'm sure Folag's watching. That'll be what he's wanted. Mm. And you've and then you would go from the extreme of Oleg Tinkoff to you obviously also worked with the late Andy Reese as well at BNC. Who was yeah, he was fantastic. Very similar to Oleg Tinkoff in that he's poured so much of his personal money into the sport, but was, you know, didn't sort of want the limelight himself. Was very happy just to curate a team. Yeah, he was great. He just, he just, he was there in the background. Never really saw him, and if he was, he was always happy. Never complained, and just got on with it. Jim Okovich definitely ran that team mm. for Andy, and he did a great job of it. And uh, was was and then obviously he also raced for Jerry Ryan who. By all accounts, seems to be of that Andy Reese mould, and he's sort of a an idol owner who sort of takes the back step. Yeah, he's got that passion there for it, which is beautiful to see, and I think that's what 
we all love to see within bike riding. If you've got the owner of a team that comes to race and like to watch his team race, it's always a nice thing because he's, he's involved with it. But he was, even so, you know, he's still in the background a little bit and just let the team do what they needed to do. He trusted them, he believed in them and he's a, he's just a typical Aussie bloke, really. Which was the, um, of, them, of them World Tour teams that you rode in, raced in mm. during your career, which was the one that you have the fondest memories of in terms of, because you always get like the, the bike exchange world, it used to be Orica. It always seemed like mm. they have such a great time. Uh, my first year pro was amazing. That was great fun. Um, but I think out of all of that, probably BMC that first year, Balan, Van Avermaet, Hushoff, Gilbert, Cummins, Finney, Hincapi, Cadell. We just had a right laugh <laughs> start to finish. It was just every, every race we went to, there was never a bad guy on the team. So it was just, yeah, it was brilliant. I remember being in a, we had a yoga class in these mornings. We were sponsored by Lululemon, so we had to do them. And <laughs> it, was, it was one of those yoga classes where a few people would do it, but the rest of the time it was just generally just mucking about a little bit. And they were throwing these tennis balls around and Jill Bear threw one at me and it hit me on the back quite hard. I was like, fuck her. So I'd get him back and I threw this ball as hard as I could. <laughs> and it was Fabio Baldato who was in front of me and he was the staff faced us and this ball just did not even go near Gilbert and it just hit Baldato square in the jaw just when you heard that like like horrible like clap when he did it and that was kind of it was one of those moments where you don't want to laugh because you know you shouldn't but the whole room was just pissing himself laughing it was um and he took it quite well so yeah it was just fun it was just it was just a brilliant laugh when did you when did you kind of feel like I've got to call time on this thing? Because obviously you've had yeah you had some downs, but as you just said, you've raced for some brilliant teams, and there could have been more. But you've retired at thirty one. How how did that decision come about? And you know, are you, are you happy with how kind of things went in the end, or do you feel like you could have been racing for longer? Yeah, I'm happy. I think, with the, as I said about family, family was a lot more important. Supporting my family and being there for them was the main thing for me. And uh, bike riding ultimately didn't, they didn't come hand in hand for what I wanted it to be. So I made that decision, you know, sort of seven, eight months before the end of the year. And from that, I started looking at other work, job roles in life. I spoke to a lot of people um, about what to do. I got a lot of advice in what to do and that's kind of where it went and I don't think I think if I carried on riding now I would, I would I might have been a little bit better but I think I've never once missed it not once mm. commentating on races being at races I've never once thought oh god it'd be nice to be back racing now so I think you know that says a lot really um so yeah I'm not I don't think I could have I could have maybe done another year or two but for what I just got my head battered and I just ended up <laughs> resenting my bike even more so um Adam to finish we normally come out with some like short fire questions just some quick ones yeah. and then hopefully it'll bring out some good stories but I'll, 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 I'm going to throw a few questions at you and see what your answers are so first of all super tuck yes or no yes yes would you were you were you a fan of the super tuck yeah, I mean, you did do it in a bunch, but yeah, if you're on the front or whatever, then yeah, fine. And what did you? Uh, what was your highest speed in a pro race? Uh, 
132. It wasn't in a pro race, but in training, 132.9k an hour. Was that wow. in Switzerland? No, in Sierra Nevada. Ooh. That's yeah, that's that fast. fast one. Yeah. yeah. Tell Sean Yates about that. He'll be jealous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <it's big. laughs> he won't have that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the um, disc brakes, yes or no? Yes. In the pro peloton as well? You found from? Yeah, fine. Yeah? Yeah, it's fine. I, know, I, I think I know the answer to this one. Inverted handlebars. No. <laughs> are, you, are, you, are, you, are you happy that you've, uh, they've kind of started to disappear already? It's only in Britain it's happening. Yeah. Look at, like, look at the top 20 of the tour. No one's got the levers pointed in. How can you attack up a hill on the flat, on your hoods, if your levers are touching that far in? You can't. You probably can, but it's surely, I don't know. There's to me, it just doesn't. It doesn't appeal to me. Number one for the way it looks, but number two, if you can sit like that for eighty percent of the day in that aero tuck with your arms bent, brilliant. Mm-hmm. But you can't. You can maybe sit like that for ten percent of the day. So let's what say that's half an hour, forty-five minutes. If you do that within a race, then great. But what about the other stuff? And through that 10% that I'm talking about, if you're flat out in that position, you're not going to be able to hold that aero position because your body's going to become uncomfortable. You become inefficient. Mm. So what happens? Your elbows go out and then you become even less aero. (laughs) So for me, I've always rode with my levers like 0.2 millimetres outwards. So you hold your levers, hands in front of you, and you tilt your arms in, your elbows go out. If you tilt them out ever so slightly, I mean ever so slightly, just your hands, your elbows go in. So even if you're on the limit and you're still holding your hood, you're still with your arms in, with your elbows in. So for me, it's more comfortable. It's more efficient over a long amount of time where you naturally sit in that position. So for me, it's um, for inverted levers, pointy in levers, whatever you want to call them. When when riding in the peloton, who which rider during your career scared you most? Ooh. In terms of what? Just you you would have been petrified to piss him off. Robbie Hunter. Yeah. Was he was he because we've heard actually you know what we've heard the guys from the southern uh, southern heavens, South Africans, the Aussies are the ones who are loudest. Wait. I don't think so much anymore. I think they used to be, but they're definitely not anymore. The likes of Baden Cook and Robbie McHugh and they were the loud ones, but I don't think anymore. I think the Aussies are generally quite calm and quiet now. But because we've heard uh, that you, you you often hear the skrill of uh, Richie Port. Yeah, he's just Richie, just an angry man, and he's just <laughs> <laughs> Richie's Richie. Um, but yeah, he's just yeah, Richie's a lovely bloke, but he's. Um, he gets angry. Do you remember the first time you crashed in a pro race? No. That's, that's good. And touch wood, I've only ever had seven crashes in my only career. Only seven. Mm. I think there's some riders who've had seven in one Grand Tour. So you've done. She's had, done well. she's had seven in bloody a day week. Yeah. <laughs> Poor guy. And uh, if you. If you were to go to a dinner party and you had to take three people from your career, who are you inviting? <laughs> uh, three people from my career. Oh, that is a tough one. 
Um, oh, hmm. Nah, he's tough. Probably take Finney. Yeah, I'm in so many teams. Why, why is why is Finney getting an invite? What's he bringing to the table? Fun and laughter. Yeah. I'm just trying to think of people that would get on with all of us as well. Finney, Thomas de Ghent. Yeah, he's a lot of fun, actually, Thomas. I'm stuck on the last one. There's so many guys. Oh, God, there's so many. I'll, I'll just say Cummings, because Cummings are great. Yeah. Bring, yeah bring, some, bring some, like, north, just some calm northernness to it all. Um, yeah, I guess. <laughs> or, or the opposite of calm. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. All right, then, on, on, like, a different note, then, who was the best bike rider you ever raced with? Boonham was good, man, like Tom Boonham. Yeah, I'd say one of the most efficient bike riders, which I always think that's like the key to bike riding, Paolini. He was so good at judging everything. Yeah. Uh, and Bernati, he was a lot of, he was great at that as well. Fair enough. Paolini, man, he like, he used to, every time you see him on a climb, no bottles on his bike, top of the climb, he's somehow got a bottle. <laughs> Right clothing on, always out of the wind, just on it with everything, you know, never a, never a foot wrong almost. Excellent. And he seems like he'd be quite fun as well if you're on the night out. Yeah, he is, um, he is a great guy as well, actually. He's a fun guy. Um, Adam, we're going to let you go now because obviously you've got to travel to Scotland and you've got to go down to Bath <laughs> and you've got to travel I don't know, elsewhere after that. But it was a pleasure having you. in the Skoda. A lot of times in the lovely Skoda, uh, exactly. driving up and down the A1. So, <laughs> brilliant. <laughs> enjoy that. But thanks for coming on, Adam. It's been a pleasure. Not a problem at all. Thanks for having me, guys. So there we go. That was former national, British national champion, seven-year World Tour pro Adam Blythe, who now works, you know, does commentary for GCN and Eurosport, as you mentioned, and rides on the back of a motorbike for NBC and does lots and lots of different stuff. Uh, great little guest there, James, wasn't he? Absolutely. Well, he's, 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 he's lived a life. For somebody who did retire at 31, he's probably got more stories because of the teams he went to. You know, BMC at the time, absolutely massive team, bankrolled by someone who just poured more money into the sport than anyone else. And that was, you know, halcyon days through to a real kind of what sounded like a bit of a ramshackle operation. And that's probably being kind, which was uh, Aqua Blue. And ultimately ending up racing as well um, on the UK circuit. So a multi, multi-dimensional, multi-experience fella who clearly knows everyone and therefore makes yeah makes a great pundit. Yeah. And I, I like someone who's as honest as he is about uh, the bike equipment that bike riders use, actually. Over the weekend, there's a really interesting article put out by Cycling our competitors at Cycling Weekly, but credit where credit's due, and they chatted to a South African rider called Willie Schmidt. He rides a Burgos BH, which are like a second-tier Spanish team, and he spoke about how there's so much disparity in the professional peloton in terms of equipment and how riders are turning up at races knowing that they're on a bike or in kit that's immediately conceding 10, 15, 20 watts to the man next to them. Or how they turn. He, I think he mentioned that he turns up to bike races with a bike that weighs seven point five kilos, and it's quite interesting to to look at it in that we all think that sort of bike races get the best of the best equipment and are, are turning up all primed and ready. 
But even at that top level, there's sort of insecurities and and worries that actually the guy next to me has got a better set of wheels. So yeah, so you know, Lance is totally wrong. It was it is all about the bike. It is all about the bike, and especially now because there is such you know made some serious advances with bike technology. Um, I would say. I don't know. The one by thing is a really interesting thing, and I don't think it's going to go away. I'm not saying I disagree with Adam at all because I don't. I can't speak to his experience, but there is there's something there's something to one by. It's probably the worst part of a bicycle is the front derailleur. And if we can get rid of that, bikes will be better. Do you reckon it is? You know what I think the worst part of a bicycle is, James? Headset. No seat clamp. Mainly because ninety five percent of the bike industry design them to be absolutely awful. Yeah, I, th- I mean, there's certain there's certain parts of a bike where you wonder, has anyone ever tried to use it? Or has anyone ever really thought about the fact that you might use it more than once? You might not just like set and forget. And my bugbear, actually, one of the worst parts of a bicycle is just bolts. Mm. So you get like, you can get a stem and like, okay, granted, right, if you've got uh, a super lightweight stem, you're not going to have steel bolts in it because steel weighs just that much more than aluminium. You have alloy bolts, but you've got like a number of, Top end stems from the likes of I don't know, shan't name brands. Imagine a top end stem, and you should end up rounding out a bolt, and it's an alloy bolt which is basically made of dairy lee. And you think like this: this is a this is a bolt that belongs on a bike that costs fifty quid, not on a stem that costs three hundred. So I don't know what they're doing there. Yeah, bolts terrible, front derailleur's terrible. I I select I won't I won't name the brand at fault, but I had a bike contest for cyclists a couple of years ago. Um, and like the, the seat clamp was so poorly designed, the seat post was just constantly falling. Um, and I stopped on the side of the road while riding home from work, rounded out the bolt, uh, and it just wouldn't tighten anymore. So the seat had basically fallen all the way through the bike. So therefore, I had to ride five and a half k out of the saddle until I could get somewhere. Where then I got picked up by my dad in his car. <laughs> I had a I had a very similar experience with, uh, and I will name the brand because I love the brand and it makes me very sad. Eddie Merckx, you know, went through a bit of a difficult time, and there's a um, a seat clamp on that. Yeah, it it basically it it just broke mid ride. The bolt just sheared, and so the seat post dropped. And this is like mid ride. I was out your neck of the woods, mate. I was in Kent. Tough place to be as well. Yeah, yeah, tough place to be. Tough. I was twenty five k with my knees up around my ears. So yeah, seat clamps, that's another terrible part of a bike. But you know what it's not? I'll tell you what it's not, is your your man at the Taiwanese KOM Challenge, who's the best story I've ever heard. That's true, the guy that rode pretty much 50 kilometres all uphill of a 100 kilometre uphill only race to 3,300 metres with no saddle, but a seat post. So he couldn't even sit down sort of like in the approximate, like the approximate location on his top tube. And if you forgot about it, he was slamming down pretty hard onto a pole. So <laughs> that guy, you know, I, I, I'm going to track him down one day. Yeah, I really hope someone knows who he is. Yeah, that is that is probably the most nails performance I've, I've ever. Next to G smashing his pelvis and doing an entire like two and a half weeks more. That's one of the biggest badass moves on a bicycle I think I've seen. But um, but yeah, back to uh, back to our lovely guest Adam and his. His guest list for his dinner party. That did make me think, Joe. Who would you take? I'd invite Tom Boonan. I feel like he'd be good value. I feel like he, he'd he like a drink. Um, he'd have a bit of fun. I, I'm pretty sure he likes his red wine as well. 
So I feel, and I feel like he'd have loads of stories and I'd have loads of questions for him. I would also invite Nicky Terpstra, mm-hmm. the Dutch classic specialist, because I know for a fact he's a massive Euro trash dance fan. And so am I. So I feel like once dinner party's ended, he's taken me to some Dutch super club to get our rave on, listening to the likes of Skeeter and Sash. <laughs> and then my final invite would go to probably Oleg Tinkoff because he can pick up the bill at the end of the dinner party <laughs> or at the end of it all. He'll be he'll either if you're hosting a dinner party, he's the one who'll bring the ten grand bottle of Barolo. Or if you go out for a meal, he's the one who'll moan, but ultimately pick up the massive tab at the end. Yeah, I'd fully, I'd fully, I was going to say, I'd, I'd fully take Tinkoff as well. Just he would be, he comes to your dinner parties, he'd be like, no, this dinner party's crap. I've got a better one over here in my boat. Do you all want to come? Yeah, I've got a Michelin star chef who actually worked for me on there. He's an interesting one though, and I heard from an, an unnamed source that although Tinkoff. You know, he gave it the big bananas and was there, you know, with his head stuck out the sunroof um, and smoking fags around the paddock and, you know, whatever, being that guy. That's also that's also why I'd invite him because we reckon he'd have some luxury cigarettes. The ones that are uh, gold tip with the black uh, main bit that are sold in tins that you buy, buy out in Eastern in like Croatia. Yeah, his cigarettes only come in tins, and actually, his cigarettes don't—they—they they don't give you cancer because yeah. he's really rich. So he's got the special non-cancer response. But uh, no, he—he he apparently didn't really put that much money into the team. Really, and he had this relationship, and I'm now speaking massively out of turn. So let's hope he's not listening with his lawyers. But he did have a difficult relationship because you forget it's Tinkoff Saxo. Tinkoff had nothing really to do with Saxo. That was a bank. Saxo, Saxo Bank. Yeah, so they were um, double headline sponsors. And Saxo, I think, poured in quite a lot of the money. Tinkoff took all the headlines, generated quite a few that weren't great, and then left. And I believe that Saxo weren't exactly best impressed with that. But, you know, there we go. What you do is you show up and you spend 30 grand on wine on a one-off, and then everyone thinks that you're also putting that into the team when secretly you're probably pulling money out. What, uh, your, your, quickly, your dinner party... Well, my dinner party, yeah, so uh, absolutely um, with Tinkoff. Um, I think I'd love to commune with the ghost of Lauren Fignon and invite Hino because they would have a fantastic argument. Um, and Just get Le Monde, Fignon and Hino. Yeah, Le Monde, Fignon and Hino, just that, just that. And yeah, with the party thrown by Tinkoff. I think I'd, I'd go old school. Um, I think they, you know... All the other riders, they'd show up with helmets and sunglasses. I like the fact you could see the faces of the old school riders. And uh, maybe Patrick Lefebvre or someone just really kind of outspoken. I, I just want an argument at my dinner party. I've heard as well, if you see Patrick Lefebvre in a restaurant, that's where you should eat because that man apparently doesn't accept below average food and wine. So if you're ever about listener and you see Patrick Lefebvre in a restaurant, I'd suggest getting a table in there. On that note, we're going to leave you again. Uh, Like, subscribe, share with all your cycling friends, share with your non-cycling friends for all we care. That'd be really nice as well, wouldn't it? Get some new listeners. Um, We'll be back again in two weeks' time with another episode. Until that point, uh, I'm going to say goodbye to you, James, and bye to you, listeners. Adieu. Adieu.